You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. One of the things I kind of had been uh, mulling over again is just, you know, how much we really do have to be thankful for. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes we're not vocal uh, with that Thanksgiving. And so one of the things that I really want to do and really want to begin to kind of encourage and embed within our Sunday morning worship time are just um, opportunities for people to stand up and and give testimony to something that God is doing uh, in your life. And so what I want to do is invite you um, to kind of be thinking about um, what is it that you have that you're thankful for? I mean, what what is your testimony? What is God doing in your life? And I will guarantee you, every one of you in this room have many testimonies. And if you don't, you have every reason to ask why. Because it's not a lack on God's part. It's not a lack of opportunity on God's part. It's we need to ask God, what am I missing? What am I not seeing uh, that you're doing in my life that I need to be grateful and thankful for and testify? And so what I wanna do is just really try to work on embedding that more and more into our Sunday mornings so that this doesn't just become a spectator Sunday for us, that we're just sitting here, we're coming, and we're just gonna basically receive whatever it is that, that people have to give, but to begin to see what is your personal stake in this? What do you have to bring to a Sunday morning that might encourage, um, that might bring comfort to other people? I'll guarantee you there are things God is doing in your life that God wants to use to encourage, to comfort, and to strengthen others. One of the things that really stood out to me, I've been through many, many surgeries, and The thing that's always amazing to me, and those of you that maybe have had similar experiences, it's amazing how much you forget um, in the short term. So oftentimes I've gone through surgeries and I don't remember a lot of the things leading up to the surgery and I don't remember a lot of things post-surgery. And this particular time, this was really uniquely different. I had kind of gone into this particular surgery with kind of just this mindset that I just wanted to go on a journey with God during this particular time. And so I remember when I went into the operating room, I made it a point of looking at everything. I I wanted to make a mental note of everything in the room, what they were doing, what was in there. The clock, I remember specifically, it was 12.15 when they put me in that operating room. Um, One of the challenges that I had going in, and it was something that really caused a lot of anxiety in me, was that many of you know that this is what I hear with now. And so it really was, um, it was 
created a lot of anxiety in me that I was gonna not have this. And when I came out of surgery in the recovery room, I would not be able to hear anything that they were saying. And, and they did go to great lengths to get like a, a whiteboard so that they could write to me. Um, and, and they did in the operating room. They were kind of writing me notes and letting me know what was kind of going on. And I was able to talk to them. I just couldn't hear anything that they were, that they were saying. And so... Prior to going into this, um, I kind of was talking to Janie and my sister about just that challenge and that it, how it was making me feel really kind of anxious about, you know, how was I going to communicate? How were they going to communicate with me? My sister said to me, she said, yeah, she said, you're really going to need to communicate with them because if you're not doing anything, if you're just laying there and you're not responding, they're going to think you had a stroke. So she said, you... <laughs> So she said, you need to kind of be moving your arms and moving your legs so that they know that you're okay. So I was like, okay, no pressure. Um, so I remembered, I remembered that going in there. And so the first thing I remember when I came out of that was, was moving my arms like this and moving my legs. And one of the nurses came over and she had written, are you okay? So I said to her, yes, I'm fine. And then I kind of explained to her why I was doing what I was doing. And she just kind of like looked at me like I was just nuts. And she said, you're okay. I said, yeah, I was. And then I, I don't know, I, I, I believe God had a message for her because I said to her, and this was true, the first thing I remember coming out of that um, the, in the recovery room, the first vivid memory I had was I could hear the Lord speaking the doxology over me. And, it, and so I said to the nurse, um, you know, because she asked if I was okay, and I said, I'm, I'm great. And I said, I hear the Lord speaking the doxology over me, just over and over and over. And I said to her, do you know what the doxology is? And she shook her head no. And I said, uh, praise, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The minute I started saying that, um, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. She started to nod her head. Yes, I know what that is. I just thought that that was uh, interesting. I just really believe that that happened for a number of reasons. I feel like it was an encouragement to me to let me know God is with me. Um, and I think also that maybe to speak something that God wanted to communicate to that nurse. And so I, I just, I, I don't know why I, I remember so much um, going into and coming out of the recovery uh, for that and uh, just how God was at work in that. And so that's really kind of the, the, the testimonies that we're looking for. It's just, again, a way to encourage uh, people, to bless people, um, and just to let you know you've got a story. God is doing things in your life, and God wants to use those stories and those testimonies. So in the coming weeks, I'm hoping that some of you will, you know, let me know, hey, I, I've got something I would like to share, a, a story of something 
something that God has done or is doing um, in my life. And we're really going to work to try to get those uh, incorporated on a Sunday morning. So see me uh, afterwards or text me, call me, um, and, and just let me know. And I will work on, on getting you in here. And again, every one of you um, has a story and has a testimony. And I just pray that you'll find the strength, the courage, uh, and the boldness just to stand up and proclaim uh, the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. His name is Wonderful Counselor, who guides us through the hills and valleys of life. His name is Mighty God, who harnesses his infinite power to give strength to the finite. His name is Everlasting Father, our faithful and forever protector and provider. His name is Prince of Peace, who calms the storm in our soul and leads us to still waters. His name is Man of Sorrows, who carries our shame and our pain and our guilt and our past. He's the Lamb of God, who lives and bleeds and dies in our place. He's the Lion of Judah, who fights for us the battles we could not fight on our own. He is the power of God, the wisdom of God, the glory of God, and the gift of God. And He is the Son of God. He's the Ancient of Days, who has no beginning and who has no end. He's the radiance of God's glory, the culmination of the perfection of God. He is the commander of God's army, with multitudes of angels bowing in reverence at the mention of His holy name. He's the living stone and the rock of ages. He's the root of Jesse and the son of David. He's the light of the world and the Lord of all. He's the King of kings and the image of the invisible God. There's no one like Him. He is undefeatable. He is non-repeatable. He is incomparable and He is inescapable and He is the great I am and He is worthy, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our worship and worthy of His name, the name of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The name above all names. Without a doubt, I think one of the, the most controversial people in all of history is Jesus Christ. You can talk about God and you can mention the name of God and there's enough of a generic understanding about that as to exactly what you mean when you say the name God and, and, and people oftentimes have their own images, their own ideas about who God is. But when you begin to talk about the person of Jesus Christ, uh, without doubt, he is one of the most controversial people of all time. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, because Jesus walked upon the earth over 2,000 years ago. He was born in a very, very obscure village called Bethlehem, and he moved to Nazareth when he was just a toddler. And Nazareth, again, wasn't any place of great importance. It was really considered kind of the other side of the track, or what we would maybe refer to as kind of Hicksville. As a matter of fact, Nathaniel asked this question in John 1.46. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's the reputation Nazareth had. But that's where the Son of God 
grew up. And Jesus even learned a trade to be a carpenter. And he learned that from his stepdad, Joseph. Then when Jesus was 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. And up until that time, historians kind of call those the silent years. We don't really know about the life of Jesus up until his public ministry began. And it lasted three and a half years. And in those three and a half years, Jesus taught, he preached, performed many miracles, healed multitudes. And the interesting thing is, is he never really traveled outside of a 50-mile radius. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you don't even have to be uh, very old um, out of the womb. And chances are you've already traveled a, a radius of more than 50 miles. But Jesus lived his whole life within a radius of about 50 miles. He was just centered right there between Jerusalem and Galilee, and that's pretty much where he carried on his ministry for three and a half years. He wasn't on television, on radio, or the internet. They didn't have any of those things back then. He didn't even write a book with his own hand. And what makes all of this to me kind of so amazing is he lived so long ago in really a relatively obscure place. And yet we're still talking about him today. On every continent of this planet, people are talking about, they're witnessing about, they're reading about, they're learning about, they're singing praises to Jesus Christ. But a lot of people are confused about Jesus and there are a lot of misunderstandings about who Jesus is, what he taught, what he believed, the purpose of his coming, what the future holds in regards to him. There's a story of an elderly woman who came to a country church that she had never been to before. The usher met her at the door and was just so gracious and kind to her. He welcomed her and said, welcome, madam. So great to have you here visiting with us this morning. Can I help you find a seat? And the woman said, yeah, that'd be great. And the usher said, where would you like to sit? And the elderly woman replied, I'd like to sit kind of, you know, towards the front row. And the usher looked at her and he kind of whispered under his breath and he said, I don't think you really want to do that. You see, our pastor, Pastor Smith, um, he's a really nice guy, but he's very boring. Um, and I would encourage you to probably sit more toward the back. And the elderly woman looked at him and she said, do you know who I am? And the usher said, no. And she said, I'm Mrs. Smith. I'm the pastor's mother. And the usher replied, do you know who I am? And she said, no. He said, good. <laughs> See, it pays to know who you're talking to. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, it pays to know who you're talking to and talking about. Does it make any difference how we see and understand Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Colossians Chapter 1, verse 18 says this, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Jesus did everything he did, said everything he said in order to have first place in everything. Everything is about Jesus Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything is coming together, the scripture says, for his glory and his glory alone. 
I want you to know that every single problem, every single challenge, every issue troubling you, every obstacle that may be in your way this morning, the victory is found in Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In him, meaning Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you realize if you're here this morning and you're seeking wisdom and you're seeking knowledge, if you'll seek Jesus, you'll find both wisdom and knowledge. No matter what you might face, the scripture says the only answer to every dilemma, every challenge, every trouble, every obstacle you face, the solution is Jesus. The scripture says he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He's the prince of peace. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And it's all about Jesus. Again, the word of God is no different. When you turn to the word of God, the word of God, it's all about Jesus. He's first alluded to in the very first book, in the very opening chapters of Genesis. He is the subject, he is the focus, he is the issue of every book of the Bible. And interestingly, the Gospel of John is uniquely different from the other three Gospels that were written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called the synoptic Gospels. And that's a really fancy word that means seeing the same. If you were to ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find that they're very, very similar in that they have a lot of the same stories and they sound a lot alike. John's gospel, it doesn't read like, it doesn't sound like, the, the themes, the focus of it is so much different than Matthew, um, Mark, and Luke. And the writer John tells us the reason he wrote the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31. And he says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. John's basically saying, I wrote this whole Gospel for one purpose and that is, is that you, so you would understand there is something very important, something very unique, something very different about Jesus. And not only is he fully human, John describes him as being fully God. Jesus came among many other reasons to model for us what mankind filled with the Spirit of God was supposed to be like and how to live a God-honoring, God-focused life. And John's gospel serves as a recording of the life of Jesus, who came among us as Emmanuel, which means God with us, that God came to live among us in human flesh. That's incredible to me. I, I, I can never, ever fully wrap my mind around that concept. And this morning, I want to focus on one of the first recorded miracles that Jesus ever did. What I think it shows about him, what I think it can teach us about him, and I want to talk specifically this morning about Jesus' response to emptiness. In John 2, we find Jesus and his disciples, they're invited to this wedding in Canaan of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, has also been invited to this wedding there in Canaan. And the mother of Jesus, Mary, was also there. And beginning in verse 3, we read this. 
It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to Mary, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And Jesus said to them, draw some of the water out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, they did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now what's interesting to me about this story, as you kind of read it, one of the first things that kind of maybe comes to mind is... So what? I mean, when you kind of think about this, I mean, this is the first recorded miracle in the Bible that Jesus does. And I'm thinking, this is it? Turning water into wine? Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I, can't, I couldn't do that, and I'm sure many of you couldn't do that. And my goal is not to really minimize uh, the miracle it's just when I compare this particular miracle with some of the other miracles Jesus did, I just got to be honest with you. I think I would have led with one of those. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to establish yourself as a miracle worker, if you're trying to establish yourself among uh, the people of God as the Son of God, I think I would have started with a really big one. You know, I mean, even multiplying, you know, fish and loaves, uh, raising the dead, uh, you know, uh, miracles like that, giving sight to the blind, you know, calling the lame to walk. I mean, I, I would have probably have led with one of those. So to me, it's kind of like, as I read this, I kind of think, man, you, you really needed to go big or go home. So as I kind of began to really think on this particular scripture and what I felt like, you know, God was speaking uh, to me about this, it's really how, how really others really had no idea what Jesus had done either. I mean, other than Jesus, his mother, the disciples who were with him, and the servants who went to fill the empty water pots, you kind of get this sense, really, nobody else really knew what Jesus had done. As a matter of fact, if you read the story, the head waiter kind of gives credit uh, to the bridegroom, not to Jesus. And so why, given these factors, was this changing water into wine the first miracle Jesus did and John records. Now, one of the first things that kind of stands out to me is the sense of emptiness here. There, there's kind of this, this feeling of emptiness. There's no wine. 
the wine glasses are empty, the wine bottles are empty, there's some water pots that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water, but they're also empty. And you kind of just get this sense as you're reading and thinking about the story that emptiness kind of just abounds everywhere in a place where abundance should be abounding. As I look at this picture, this story, the one major takeaway for me is Jesus cares about emptiness. Emptiness matters to Jesus. Albeit the type of emptiness we encounter here in John chapter 2 is a lack of, of wine, hardly anything worth getting worried about or stressed over. And yet it kind of dawned on me, if Jesus cares, if this kind of emptiness matters to Jesus, just think how much more he must care about the more serious and tragic levels of emptiness people encounter on a daily basis. See, I'm thinking if Jesus will do a miracle to kind of release and impart his supernatural and miraculous power into this place of emptiness, how much more would he be willing to release that into other more strategic, more important, more critical areas of our emptiness? See, me, if Jesus cares about this emptiness there at a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and he cares enough to do something miraculous to change the emptiness into abundance, how much more must he care and be motivated to respond to the more serious issues of human emptiness? Now, if that's true, then that's good news, isn't it? Something about this occasion, this wedding setting, compelled and motivated Jesus to intervene in a very, very miraculous way. Now, again, we don't know whose wedding this was. The, the story really doesn't tell us. We know that it must have been a very close family or, or friend of, of Jesus and his mother Mary because both of them are there. And it's also important to note that wedding days in Jesus' day just as they are today, they're very, very important events and occasions. As a matter of fact, weddings back in, in Jesus' day, they were kind of the event um, of the times. If you wanted to have a party, it was usually uh, involved or associated with a wedding. And when people would go to a wedding feast, they would not go just for an afternoon or an evening. Back in Jesus' day, when you went for a wedding celebration, you went for an entire week. They would leave the farm and they would say, yeah, so-and-so is getting married and we're coming to the celebration. And, and they would leave and they would go and, and, and they would remain there for a week, and one of the staple items that they would have at these wedding celebrations was wine. It's much like today, you know, a staple item at most weddings today is a wedding cake. And so back in Jesus' day, a wedding was a big, big deal. And one of the staple items at that wedding would have been wine. And to run out of wine at one of the biggest events would be very, very embarrassing 
It was kind of a social faux pas, and you just never, ever allowed that to happen. Other things could fail, other things could go wrong, but you never, ever ran out of wine. It'd be like going to Northwest Steakhouse, you know, and, and ordering a steak, and they would say to you, I'm sorry, we're out of steaks. Now, what do you mean you're out of steaks? This is Northwestern Steakhouse. You should have steaks. And so again, the same attitude, the same idea there with a wedding. What do you mean you're out of wine? I mean, how, how could you have planned so poorly to be out of wine? So it, it, it was an embarrassment, major embarrassment. And now this is also important to mention. Wine in the New Testament was very different from wine today. In the New Testament, they didn't have water purification systems, all right? They didn't have Culligan. They didn't have reverse osmosis. They didn't have a Brita. So if you just drank the water alone in New Testament times, you would often get sick because the water wasn't purified. And so if you were just drawing it out of a spring, out of a well, and you were just drinking water alone, oftentimes you would eventually Get sick. And that's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, says, no longer drink water exclusively. He says, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So apparently, Timothy here is, is experiencing some issues because of the water. And again, uh, it, it's not like the water that we have today. It was very, very different uh, in Jesus' day. I remember the first time I went to Mexico on a mission trip. One of the things that got drilled into our head at every meeting was don't drink the water. And I was told that they even had, you know, a, a name for that. It was called Montezuma's Revenge. If you drank the water, you were going to get Montezuma's Revenge. And again, the water in Mexico was not the same water we were used to drinking here in the States. So we were only allowed to drink bottled water there. That water was purified. So again, back in New Testament times, because of the unclean water, they would often drink wine. And what they would do is they would take the wine and they would mix it with the water. Now, in, in some instances, Homer, who was an ancient Greek poet, he talks about how they would take 20 parts water and one part wine, and, and they would mix that together, and the wine would kind of act as a disinfectant. In the first century, historians recommended the common practice was eight parts water, one part wine. And many historians said most Jews would go three parts water, one part wine, and again, they would mix this together. They never drank fermented grape juice uh, just straight because that was considered barbaric. And you always mixed the water with wine. And this was what was served at the wedding Jesus is attending there in Canaan of Galilee. So when Jesus turns the, the water into wine, he's basically purifying the water in the pots because they didn't have anything else 
to drink. Now, most people would read this and think that Jesus is making some kind of, uh, you know, the same kind of wine we have available to us today. And so we read this and we think, well, you know, Jesus made wine and, and he's endorsing drinking and everybody's having wine, everybody's getting lit, so Jesus is good with people getting lit on wine. And, and that's kind of the mentality, that's kind of the thinking people take away from a scripture like this. Uh, and again, we have very you know, heated theological debates over this very topic, but that's not the way it was in Jesus' day. With alcoholic content back then, you had to drink a ton of that stuff just to get a light buzz. Actually, some guy did a little study, and here's what he concluded. To get the alcoholic content equivalent of two martinis, you would have to drink 22 glasses of their wine, the New Testament wine. Their, the 22 glasses. That's a lot, right? I mean, you'd be running back and forth to the bathroom like crazy. So the wine involved in Jesus' miracle there at the wedding of Canaan, it's very, very different from the wine we are accustomed to today. And so at this wedding feast, this wedding celebration, in Jesus' day, they had wine. And this particular celebration, they ran out of wine, and this was really going to be an embarrassment to the family that's hosting this. And again, is that life and death? I mean, does the world come to an end? No. I mean, is this the same as healing a nobleman's son? Is this the same thing, uh, you know, as raising Lazarus from the dead? Is it the same thing as giving, you know, the, the, the blind sight? It's not a big deal in the bigger scheme of things. But it tells me that in this particular situation with what this family was facing, Jesus cared. It mattered. It was important to him. May not be a big deal to anyone else, but it was not insignificant to Jesus. And oftentimes what we kind of tell people about their problems is it's really not a big deal. It's really not a significant problem. Let it go. Move on. And again, I think what Jesus is communicating to us in this story is that if it was significant to us, it was significant to him. Amen. If it mattered to me, it mattered to him. Do you ever hear people talk about minor surgery? Do you know what minor surgery is? Minor surgery is surgery that happens to somebody else. Isn't that true? If you have surgery, oh, hey, it's major surgery, right? It's me, I'm going under the knife, I'm having major surgery, it's serious, it is life and death, it is a big honking deal, call the church, everybody fast and pray, I'm having surgery, storm the gates of heaven, I'm having major surgery. The doctor calls it an ingrown toenail, but I know there's things they're not telling me, right? Everyone else has minor surgery, you have major surgery surgery, regardless of the cause. That's the same kind of deal when it comes to other people's problems. 
I have big problems. Your problems, not so much. They're little, they're minor, they're insignificant. But when you're that couple, when that's your wedding, that's your celebration, it's your reputation, and you suddenly have no more wine, and you fear maybe people are going to start talking about you in the little community of Canaan. Man, did you hear what happened last week at so-and-so's wedding? They ran out of wine. Ah, oh, so glad I wasn't that family. It was very embarrassing, just horrible. And I think Jesus understood that. And I think that mattered to him. Here he's at a wedding in a podunk, Hicksville town called Cana next to the other town called Nazareth. And Jesus came to that wedding and he does his very first miracle there because he cared about that problem, that issue. Even though it may seem trivial and insignificant and not a big deal to us or maybe to others that were there, it mattered to this couple, and therefore it mattered to Jesus. Amen. One of the takeaways for me regarding this first miracle Jesus did there, whatever problem you have today, Jesus cares. Doesn't matter how big or small that problem may be, how trivial or how monumental it may feel, how mundane it may seem to others, I want you to know if it matters to you, if it's important to you, if it's significant to you, Jesus cares. If it matters to you, it matters to him. If it concerns you, it concerns him. So I want to just ask you this morning, because we're going into a time of thanksgiving. And again, it is, it is a time of abundance. It, it is a time of overeating. It is a time of overindulging. And yet, how many of us are going to go into an occasion that abounds in plentifulness? Empty. Whatever that source of emptiness is, whatever that cause of emptiness is today, it can be personal, it can be relational, it can be related to money, it can be related to your job, it can be very, very insignificant to others. But I just want you to know that whatever emptiness you're experiencing, regardless of how big or small that is, Jesus cares about emptiness. He cares about the emptiness in your life. He cares about the emptiness in your career. He cares about the emptiness in your relationships, in your workplace, in your marriage. He cares about that business problem that maybe you have. He cares about that physical problem you have. Your problems, again, though insignificant to other people, are not significant to Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, cast your cares. And again, it doesn't specify what those cares are. Whatever those cares are, he says, cast your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. Earlier this week, Cheryl 
uh, shared a story with me that I thought perfectly fit with what I'm talking about here this morning. So I'm just going to invite Cheryl to kind of come up and, and share that story that she shared with me uh, this week. It's on? Okay, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> I always have technical issues with this thing. Um, I just wanted to share, um, some of you know, a few, several months back, there was a big fire at the Kirk, and it's no longer there. Um, a couple of people in the church were impacted, myself included. So um, recently, though, I had lost some things, um, some journals and some other things that were really important to me. Um, and I thought they were just gone, and so I kind of had kind of started moving on from that. And I had a friend who was they're cleaning out their mom's house actually, and I had some stuff there that I didn't know about, and they happened to be my journals, all my journals from like 10 to 20 years I've been keeping journals, and so um, it did really tie in really well with what he was saying. It was like so to others it'd be very insignificant, but for me it just was a real blessing to have those back, and um, you just never know what God's going to do. So anyway, cool. So did this really matter? Was this really important to anyone other than Cheryl? Probably not. Was this the end of the world for Cheryl? No. But because it mattered to Cheryl, it mattered to God. Because it was important to Cheryl, it was important to God. What about you this morning? What issue, what situation, what relationship, what circumstance in your life maybe is pressing in upon you this morning? Maybe it's weighing you down. Maybe it's got you concerned. It's got you anxious. I want you to know if it matters to you, it matters to God. If it's important to you, it's important to God. Are those places of emptiness you need him to fill this morning? What are those places? Where are they? What are they? And just again, be honest. It may be a lost diary. It may be a lost child. It may be a broken fingernail. It may be a broken dream. All of it matters to Jesus. And Jesus is here, just as he was there in that wedding of Canaan and there in Galilee, to fill the empty water pots. Jesus is here this morning to fill and to overflow our places of emptiness with his miraculous presence and power. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together this morning. We're just going to do again prayer of consecration. Jesus invites you if you are comfortable. Uh, just holding your hands out again. Again, this is just a sign of, of surrender. This can be a sign of just giving whatever those empty places are this morning. We're just giving that to Jesus. And with our open hands, it also uh, enables us not to just give what we need to give to him, but to be able to receive what he has to give us this morning. So let's just pray this together. Lord Jesus, with you, I have fullness, freedom from emptiness and a meaningless life. Apart from you, 
I can do nothing of spiritual significance, but with you I can do all things. I receive your righteousness and release my sinfulness. I receive your wholeness and release my brokenness. I receive your fullness and release my emptiness. I receive your peace and release my anxiety. I receive your joy and release my despair. I receive your healing and release my sickness. I receive your love and release my selfishness. I receive your transformed humanity and release my deformed humanity. I receive your humility and gentleness and release my pride and arrogance. Come, Holy Spirit, transform my heart, mind, soul, and strength so that my consecration becomes your demonstration, that our lives become your sanctuary. For the glory of God, our Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.